Hi, guys. Good to see you all. My table's breaking on me here. There we go. Um, you don't want to see me lean on the table and just go straight over, right? Some of you do want to see that. I could tell by the look at your face. Well, it's not going to happen. Hey, um, last week we got into this new sermon series where we're sort of talking about the motto of Grace Fellowship, loving God, loving people, and changing the world. And uh, we jumped right into scripture last week in Mark chapter 12. If you were here, you will remember that because I know that all you do all week is think about the sermon that you heard on Sunday. So I'm sure you will remember that. We were in Mark chapter 12 and we were at the, uh, at the point in time where Jesus is uh, about to go to the cross. It was the Wednesday of Passion Week when somebody came to him and asked him a question, what is the great commandment? And he answered that by saying, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you will love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, the first and the great commandment, he said. And we saw that that just stirred up the pot and got him in even more trouble with the religious leaders of his day. And that happened right before they arrested him and took him to his trials the next day and ultimately to the cross. Today, we are going to read from the Gospel of Luke. Last week was Mark chapter 12. This week, we're going to be in Luke. So it goes Matthew, then Mark, then Luke in your New Testament. So go to the Gospel of Luke, and I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Now, I want, you, I want to preface this by saying that what we're about to read is going to sound like a very familiar story. You have, you're going to scratch your head and go, where have I heard this before? Okay. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to that place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put, on him his, he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. It kind of sounds familiar, right? 
we have this very same uh, conversation, well, a similar conversation. And different um, Bible scholars have different views on this, but the more I study this, the more convinced I become that at least in my opinion, this is not the same experience as Mark was recording. Uh, This takes place in an entirely different time in Jesus' ministry. It takes place in an entirely different setting than it took place in Mark's story. And also in Matthew 22, the same story that Mark tells is told in Matthew 22. Those are the same story. But I think Luke's version of this story is actually a different occasion. One of the things we have to keep in mind about the Gospels, you have four uh, stories of Jesus' life and ministry, and they're all slightly different, although they all tell the same story. Sometimes we get a version of a story that is similar but different than the version of the story we get elsewhere, and a lot of that, I think, just comes down to the fact that Jesus was a traveling teacher. He went from place to place, and he preached sermons, and he taught lessons, and he told parables, and he used illustrations again and again and again. And sometimes he might tell the story one way, and another time he might tell the story in a slightly different way to make the same point, especially with parables. So in this case, we don't have someone asking him this question of what is the greatest commandment and him giving the answer. We have this scribe bringing up the issue, and Jesus asks him, I don't know, what do you think? And he gives the right answer. It's the very same answer. It's the answer that any good, well-informed, Bible-believing Jew should give. As we said last week, it is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was absolutely foundational theology to every good Jew. And so this guy got the question right because he too is a Jewish priest. And so in Jesus' case, he got it right. In this guy's case, he got it right. And Jesus went on and said to him, now, uh, why don't you go do it? And the guy, I, you know, sometimes... I'm kind of sarcastic. I don't know if you ever noticed this about me. Sometimes when I'm reading, I read things in my own sarcastic voice. So I can't say for sure what the tone of voice was when this guy answered Jesus, but it says he was wishing to justify himself. Jesus had just pushed back a little bit, right? Why don't you go and do this? And he wants to justify himself. And so he goes, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes, I'm glad you asked. And Jesus begins telling a story. And by the way, everybody who bumps into Jesus, when they're having a conversation, if Jesus begins to tell a story, that's when they know they're in trouble. It it means you are getting this wrong. Let me show you how stupid you are. Only Jesus does it very lovingly, not like I would do it. And so... And so he begins to tell him this story that is a very famous story that has become known to us as the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable. It's a story that Jesus made up in order to make a point, to illustrate a point. And you have to understand that to a Jewish audience listening to this story was shocking. This concept would never, ever occur to a Jew in Jesus' day that the bad guys in the story are the Jewish priests and the good guy in the story is a Samaritan. 
Now, we have coined the phrase, Good Samaritan. And everybody knows what a Good Samaritan is, right? Most people who don't know the Bible have no idea that a Samaritan is a person from Samaria, right? They, they think that somehow a Samaritan is just a person who does good things. But the exact opposite was the belief in this time. The exact opposite. They thought that if you're a Samaritan, you are by definition a bad guy. If you're a Samaritan, you're by definition evil. If you're a Samaritan, you hate God and God hates you. And Jewish people were taught from infancy to stay away from Samaritans because they were the scum of the earth. Never trust a Samaritan. Never make friends with a Samaritan. And certainly don't go dating any Samaritan boys. I'll tell you that right now, okay? Because this was a major, major, major cultural divide in that region. You think that, that, that the, the racism is highly charged in America today, which sadly it is? It doesn't hold a candle to what the racism was like in that region. Samaritans and Jews despised one another. And Jews had always been taught that there is no, nothing good that comes out of Samaria. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. Jesus tells a story about a different kind of love when he tells us about a good Samaritan. And one of the points we can take from this story is that nothing stands in the way of true love. Which I know you know if you've seen the greatest movie of all time, The Princess Bride. <laughs> Nothing stands in the way of true love, right? This farm boy, Wesley, meets this beautiful girl. She is the most beautiful thing he has ever laid eyes on and they immediately fall in love and it is true love. But fate takes them away from one another and the rest of the story is about Wesley and Buttercup. What a name. Wesley and Buttercup coming back together because nothing can get in the way of true love. Not even the fire swamp. Not even giants. Not even princes. Not even rodents of unusual size. <laughs> Nothing can get in the way of true love. And Jesus must have seen the princess bride because he's making that point right here. <laughs> Based on her beauty alone, he was so smitten that he gave everything to be reunited with her. Let me give you another a movie illustration of a different kind of love. Liam Neeson was a man with a certain set of skills. <laughs> and he had been, for those of you who haven't seen the movie Taken, he had been some sort of James Bond type guy in a previous life. And his teenage daughter was kidnapped in Europe by people who were trading in the sex uh, trade. And he finds out and he heads to Europe and kills everyone in Europe to get his daughter back. <laughs> right? Why? Because she's his daughter. You show me a dad who would not risk his life to save his daughter and I'll show you a dirtbag. 
any dad who has any goodness in his heart whatsoever is going to love his child just based on the fact that she is his child, enough to risk his life and go to any extremes. And we watch that movie and all the killing and all the gore and all the blood and go, that's a story of love. (laughs) The, The first example is a story of love based on romance and beauty. The second one is a story of love based on closeness of familial affinity, and neither one of them has anything to do with the type of love Jesus is calling us to live by when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. See, love simply responds with compassion, care, and mercy, and kindness not based on things like romance, not based on things like beauty, not based on familial connection. But when you think about this Samaritan and the guy he helped who is presumably a Jew, they're of completely different cultures. They're of completely different and antagonistic to one another religions. They're of different races. They have different social standing. They have a different status. There is the problem of inconvenience here. As we see a priest and a Levite go walking by, and as they're coming up upon this man and they see him there bleeding in the street, they look at their eye watch and go, I'm going to miss my appointment, and they go to the other side of the street and walk on without doing anything. And so there's this inconvenience factor. This could be ugly, this could be costly, this could cost time. I'm not sure I wanna make this investment. There is going to be a cost involved in helping this guy. You're not getting anything from him. It's gonna cost you something to actually invest in this guy. Those are the things that got in the way of the priest and the Levite, presumably. But they didn't get in the way of the Samaritan. Love simply responds with compassion. It simply responds with care. It simply shows mercy. It simply brings kindness to the situation. In 1 John 4, we're told that we can only love because why? He first loved us. We can only love because he first loved us. This type of love is not of human origin. This is not the type of love when you see that special someone across the dance floor and your eyes meet and the, and the angels begin to sing into heaven and you're gonna be together for the rest of your life. This is not the kind of love that makes you chase uh, killers to free your daughter. This is a different kind of love. God loves us, and therefore we can love with this kind of love. God gets the ball rolling, if you will. And because he gets the ball rolling by pouring love into us, our, his love now can flow through us to other people. It doesn't originate with me. It originates with him. Do you see why Jesus made such a point of connecting those two great commandments? Love God and love people. If you don't love God, you got no chance to love people. It is the love of God that flows through you to other people. 
And the more you realize God's grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love in your own life, the more you should respond by loving others in the same way, which is why Jesus told another one of his famous parables, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember that one? He, he says, you know, there was this servant who owed his master millions of dollars, and the master called him and said, it's time to collect, and he threw himself at, his, at the mercy of his master and wept at his feet, <clears throat> and he said, please, please forgive me, please forgive me, and the master forgave him all of the millions that he owed him, and while he was on his way home, he found another, for, uh, another fellow servant who owed him 10 bucks, and he had the guy thrown in prison, let his family starve until he could pay him back the $10. And the point of this story is that when God has forgiven you much, it's only right that you would be someone who forgives others. When God loves you much, it's only uh, predictable that you would love others. And so Jesus connects these two and says, love God and love people. In the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which is the only verse any of you knows from Micah, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says this, he has shown you, O man, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This idea of loving God shows itself in doing justice, extending mercy in all humility toward other people. All right, turn with me to the book of Galatians. If you're in your New Testament, it, just keep going to the right after you pass Romans and First and Second Corinthians. You're gonna come to Galatians. If you go to Ephesians, you went too far. Again, there is a table of contents. Don't feel uh, that you shouldn't check it. Galatians chapter six. The apostle Paul is writing here. And as you're turning, I'm going to do something about this frog in my throat. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. While we have opportunity, that part of the verse just jumps out at me. We, we shouldn't lose heart in doing good. We should keep on doing good. We should keep on expressing compassion. We should keep on extending mercy. We should keep on showing kindness. We should keep on doing good while we have opportunity. The implication being that you will not always have opportunity. And can I just say this, and you tell me if you agree? I'm not sure there's ever been a time in human history where the opportunity has been greater to show love, extend mercy, and give kindness to people. We live in a time and a place, in a culture, in a society in which there's so much pain and so many people hurting. We certainly have opportunity. I just made a quick list, top of my head. You know that in California, it depends on the, on the research you read and you kind of have to guess and put it all together, but it looks to me, based on the most recent research, that in the state of California where we live, about 80% of people 
do not claim to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior. 80% of the millions of people who live up and down this great state would say, yeah, I, I, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not born again. Uh, I might attend a church. I might have some religion in my background. More and more, the numbers are just going up by the year of those who say I have no religious convictions whatsoever and I'm not even interested in any religious discussions. But conservatively, it looks like 80% of the people who are on the freeway with you every morning don't know Jesus. 80% of the people who attend school with your children don't know Jesus. 80% of the people who work in your office building don't know Jesus. And we live in a time where we have opportunity to do good. There are broken families everywhere you look. In fact, to a great degree in our society today, the family is being abandoned for different models of people doing life together. And the family is being rejected as even a working, functioning option for people. There are hurting children everywhere. You know, in our men's Bible study, we have numerous teachers in that group who are there on Saturday mornings, and almost every Saturday morning, one of the prayer requests from at least one of the teachers is, listen, there's some kids in my school who are really, really hurting, would you pray for them? So many teachers in our congregation <clears throat> who've been dropped into schools, Christian schools, public schools, private schools, homeschool, there's all kinds of teachers and those teachers, for the most part, are struggling as the educational system shakes and shivers and tries to find its bearing. And they're struggling to just do their job to educate kids, but most importantly, they're, they're struggling to actually love these kids well, because so many of these kids are not being loved well in their homes. There is poverty, obviously. There is homelessness everywhere you look. There, there are teenagers who are probably more confused in this generation than any generation of teenagers before, and I knew some teenagers in the 60s, <clears throat> and I'm telling you, there's less that is concrete truth in the mind of the average teenager today than ever before in Western culture, and those kids are hurting, and they're confused. There are crisis pregnancies happening every day. And there's a whole lot of people carrying a whole lot of signs and, and saying we gotta vote for this or vote for that, but you know that every one of those crisis pregnancies involves at least three people. It involves at least a mother, a father, and a child, and those are people, people that Jesus loves. And the church ought to be those who stand up and say I'm gonna love those people, whatever that looks like, whatever that means. There's uh, overseas missions organizations and, and there's uh, all kinds of missions work being done in other countries. Uh, there are coworkers where you work who are hurting. The hospitals all around us are overflowing. There are lonely seniors who haven't had a visit from anyone or a phone call from anyone in months and as far as they know, they are forgotten. There are jails and prisons that are crowded and overcrowded where criminals are being taught how to be better criminals. There are corrupt leaders 
at every level in the communities of our society. There are phones that go off when somebody's preaching. <laughs> Life is full of difficult stuff. Guys, the point is this. I could sit here and, and, you know, just keep going. Isn't life terrible? Isn't life terrible? You know what? It ain't terrible. You want me to tell you why? Because Jesus is alive. He is the solution. He is the answer. It is the love of Christ that, that holds solutions to this. I know that some of us are very politically minded. God bless you. If you're politically minded, stay involved in politics. That's where God has you. But let me just say, the answer is not in any political leader or group of political leaders. The answer is in Jesus Christ. The answer is not in an improving economy. The answer is in Jesus Christ. The answer is not in erasing race and pretending like there's no racial divides or differences between people. The answer is in Jesus Christ. And if the church of Jesus Christ would begin to take seriously the great commandment to love God and love people, then that divide would begin to break down. The answer is in Jesus Christ. It's easy to look at these realities and be saddened by what's going on in our society. But God has called us as his children to more than sadness. He's called us to love. I bet the priest and the Levite were sad about the injured man. I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt on that. I bet they felt sorry for him. But the Samaritan loved him. I bet the priest and the Levite were busy, just like you and I are busy. So was the Samaritan, but the Samaritan loved him. I bet the priest and the Levite had limited resources, just like we all have limited resources. And they probably looked at him laying there in the street and said, it is gonna cost me a fortune to meet that guy's needs. But the Samaritan loved him. It's not enough to be sad. It's not enough to make excuses. It is not enough to point fingers and explain how come it's the other side that made all these problems happen. God has called us. God has commanded us in the greatest of all commandments to love him so much that we will love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we start thinking, yes, I'm doing that, I'm helping my kids and I'm helping my grandkids, and he goes, no, no, your neighbor is the Samaritan guy. Your neighbor, if you're a Samaritan, is the Jewish guy. Your neighbor is that person you don't have an attraction to. Your neighbor is that person you don't have a familial affinity with. Love your neighbor, he says, as yourself. Now, we're going to do some perusing. Go to the back of your New Testament, to the book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but the letters of John. So we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John toward the back. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. 1st John chapter 4. And in 1 John chapter 4, again, familiar verses to some of us. Here's what he says beginning in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In other words, don't tell me that you love God when there is no evidence that you love people. 
He who does not love does not know God. If you're struggling to love people, now remember we're defining love biblically. If you're struggling to love people, you need to ask yourself, what's going on between me and God? How's my love for God? He who does not love does not know God. What an indictment. God says, don't say you love me and then not love the people I created in my own image. It doesn't work like that. If you won't love others, then the love of God is not in you. Skip down to verse 19. We're still in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. We quoted that earlier. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brothers also. It's convicting, at least to me. And I, and I know some of us are thinking, listen, <laughs> I'm just not a people person. It's not the personal. I'm just not a people person. People frustrate me. Or, or I, I'm really, really an introvert and people wear me out. Or maybe you're saying, you know, if I'm honest, I just don't like most people. <laughs> Who said you had to like them? God said you have to love them. I don't like some of you. I'm trying to move my gaze around, you know. No one just fix my gaze on Garrett and say that, and everybody knows. But that's not really true. Even Chuck's starting to grow on me a little bit. I, I... But where in Jesus' example of the Good Samaritan do you see anything about liking someone? The Samaritan does not like the injured man. He doesn't even know him. They, they seem to have nothing in common. There's nothing in this story about any personal affinity or warm feelings. Godly love is deeper than that. Now flip back to 1 Corinthians. We'll show another passage that some of you are familiar with. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, God gives us this sort of a picture, and I wouldn't call it an exact definition, but it's a picture of what heavenly love looks like. When it says we can love because God first loved us, we're talking now about the kind of love that comes from God. It's not based on romance. It's not based on warm feelings. It's not based on connection or affinity or things that we have in common. It's different. Listen to how different it is. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. What does that say about liking anybody? The love that God gives us is not based on how well he likes us. In fact, what does the scripture say? 
It says that while we were his enemies, Romans chapter five, God sent his son. He demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die for us while we were yet his enemies. John 3.16, which we sang about this morning, doesn't tell us that God so liked the world that he sent his only son. It says that he loved us. So he sent his son to save us. Remember, Christianity at its core, at its core, is not about a belief system. And it's not about a series of religious traditions. It's not about theological convictions. As important as all of those things are, Christianity at its core is about relationships of love. God's love for you and me. Our love for God and our love for the people who are made in his image. And maybe you're thinking, but I do love people. I really do. I care deeply when I hear about all these problems that people have. It's just that I'm not doing anything practical to show that love. Actually, nobody would say that because it sounds so ridiculous. But that's how a lot of us are living. So (laughs) I'm not trying to beat you guys up. I'm not trying to guilt anybody here. But I would like us to search our own hearts. I would like us on an individual basis to consider some questions about ourselves and how well we're loving. Search your own heart. Who do you pray for on a regular basis? If your honest answer is, well, mostly I pray for myself, my family members, and the people that are closest to me, then you need to examine your life to see if you're really loving your neighbor as yourself. Honest (laughs) self-examination. You guys are not gonna be happy with me. Honest self-examination. When you came in here this morning, those of you who are here in the room, when you came in here this morning, I wonder um, if you were thinking about anybody other than yourself. I wonder how many of us We're thinking about how we were feeling this morning, whether we were tired, whether we were rushed, whether we were doing well. I wonder if we were thinking, where am I going to sit? Oh my gosh, a new family is in my seat. (laughs) What am I going to do? You think I could ask them to move? I could probably, what if I sat on their lap? You think they get the point? I wonder how many of us thought, "Um, I sure hope the music's good. Or I sure hope he doesn't preach into the second half of the early game today. Good luck with that. Or even just finding and talking to your friends. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but it's interesting to search our hearts, isn't it? And ask whether I was really focused on those things or whether I was thinking about, how do I express love to God in worship today? Who might God give me to minister to in a room filled with people today? I wonder how others are doing and how I might be a solution to something that's going on with them today. It is so easy, guys, for me to slip into a pattern of not really loving others and not even realize it. But the mark of the Christian is love. What did Jesus say to his disciples? They will know you are my disciples by your 
Okay, elbow the person next to you. We're gonna try this again. They will know you are my disciples by your love. love. That's the mark. He didn't say they'll know you're my disciples because of your view on reformed theology. He did not say they will know you are my disciples by how thick your Bible is and how many things are underlined in it. Did not say they will know you are my disciples because on Sunday morning your car is always in the church parking lot. It said they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. In, in Matthew chapter 25, and we won't turn there, but in Matthew 25, Jesus summarizes this. He says, you know, in the last day when the Son of Man comes, when all his holy angels with him, then will he separate the people before him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and he will say to the sheep, come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you came to me. And they will say, Lord, when were you hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or in prison and we cared for you? And he will say, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of my brothers, you have done it unto me. And then he will turn to the goats and he will say, depart from me, accursed ones. For when I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was in prison, you did not come to me. When I was sick, you did not care for me. And these shall go away into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will say to him, but Lord, when were you hungry, thirsty, sick, in prison, naked, and we didn't care for you? And he will say, and as much as you have not done it to the least of these, you have not done it unto me. And they will go into everlasting fire, but the righteous into eternal life. And he will say, enter into your rest. Now don't get this wrong. Jesus is not saying that it is how many good works you do to help hurting people that gets you into heaven. He's saying, if you are one of my children, you will care for people. It's the evidence of your salvation. I'm just saying we're surrounded by hurting people. In many ways, our culture is a mess, and, and it's our own doing as a society that's made it such a mess. But in a time as, uh, as this, with such darkness, we have tremendous opportunity to be light. Not because we want people to like Christians more. Not because we think people deserve to be helped because they're so wonderful and we like them so much. And not as a marketing strategy for building up our church attendance, but simply because we are the church. We are the people of God, and as such, we represent the God who is love. It's time for us to do good to all men. We must do it as individuals. We must do it as families. We must do it as a church family. Never before in our lifetimes, maybe never before in history, has there been so much need and therefore, so much opportunity to do good. When Jesus was asked what was the single greatest commandment, he gave two, love the Lord your God. Because if you don't love God, you'll never be able to love people. And the second is like it, love people. 
If you don't love people, then it's obvious that you don't actually love God. The need is great. The opportunity is in our lap. The plan is in place. All that is needed is for those of us who name the name of Jesus Christ to begin to allow his love to flow through us in such a way that their lives are transformed in that wonderful name. The ball is in our court, church. Love God, love people. And when you do that, God will change the world through you. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's stand together and pray. And let's just kind of have a prayer of consecration. Let's, as a church family, let's just agree together that we are in a fresh and new and and serious way going to commit ourselves as individuals and as a family that we will love people because we love God and we love God because he loved us. And, and, and let's, let's commit ourselves to the idea that when we walk out of these doors and out of the comfortable confines of the church building, that we will shine in the darkness while we have opportunity. Father, this is our prayer. We know that we cannot do this on our own. We know that apart from you, our love is weak and broken and selfish. But we know that your love is perfect. And we know that because you have loved us, we can love others. And so God, get our attention. Let our hearts break for what breaks your heart. Let us see people the way that you see people. Let us care more about your glory and the care of others than we care about our own convenience, our own resources, our own agendas. Father, as we leave this place, like salt from a salt shaker, spread us over this culture and use us to be light in the midst of the darkness. And this we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go be salt.